Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We have been watching uh, discussions in the courtroom during the cross-examination of Kyle Rittenhouse, who has, perhaps surprisingly, uh, taken to testifying in his own defense in that Kenosha, Wisconsin courtroom today. Rittenhouse uh, killed two people and injured another, you might recall, during protests in Kenosha last August. Rittenhouse says he did it in self-defense because he believed he was being attacked with lethal force at the time. Let's get straight to CNN's Sarah Sider outside the courtroom in Kenosha. And Sarah, Rittenhouse's testimony has lasted several hours. It's had a few key moments. Very key moments. I mean, what we heard um, is unusual, as you pointed out. It is unusual for a defendant to take the stand in any trial, uh, certainly any criminal trial. Uh, In this case, we heard uh, Kyle Rittenhouse's version of events uh, from the time that he came into town to remove graffiti from a high school to the moments in which he ended up shooting uh, three people. He details that uh, very, very explicitly. And then the cross-examination, the prosecutor tries to catch him in inconsistencies. Is your mind clear today? Yes, Your Honor. Kyle Rittenhouse took the stand in his own defense for the killing of two men and wounding of another last summer during the unrest that exploded in Kenosha, Wisconsin. On the night of the 24th, were you aware of anything going on in Kenosha? I, I knew there was uh, protests, demonstrations, and riots going on in the later evening. Okay. And how were you aware of that? I saw videos on social media. The next day, his friends suggested they go to help protect businesses, and they did, he testified. He said they went to the car source car dealership, and the owners accepted their help. Did they give you permission to be there? They did. Later that night, Rittenhouse said he left the dealership and was asked by his friend to put out a fire elsewhere. That led to his first deadly shooting. When it came time to talk about it, though, Rittenhouse broke down in sobs, saying he was cornered. As I'm walking down Sheridan Road, um, I, I hear somebody scream, burn in hell. And I reply with friendly, friendly, friendly. To let them know, hey, I'm just here to help. He said he noticed a dumpster fire, went towards it, and was approached by two men. As I'm stepping forward, I believe his name is now Joshua Zeminski. He steps towards me with a pistol in his hand, and as I'm walking towards to put out the fire, I drop the fire extinguisher, and I, I take a step back. I look over my shoulder, and Mr. Rosenbaum was now running from my right side, I was cornered from in front of me with Mr. Zeminski, and there were <laughs> there were three people right there. His sobbing prompted the judge to call for a break. 
Rittenhouse returned completely composed. Mr. Zeminski instructed Mr. Rosenbaum to get him and kill him. I turn around for for about a second while continuing to run, and I point my gun at Mr. Rosenbaum. Does that stop him from chasing you? It does not. He's gaining speed on me. A gunshot is fired from behind me, directly behind me, and I take a few steps, and that's when I turn around. And as I'm turning around, Mr. Rosenbaum is, I would say, from me to where the judge is, uh, coming at me. Why didn't you just keep running? When I was over there, there were about a hundred people surrounding that, that those cars, and there was no space for me to continue to run to. Okay. And so you turned around? Yes. And as you see him lunging at you, what do you do? I shoot him. And how many times did you shoot? I believe four. Rittenhouse says he began to run. People were screaming, get his ass, get his ass, get him, get him, get him. Rittenhouse then describes how and why he shot the other two men, saying he was defending his own life. What I remember is running past Anthony Huber, and as I'm running past Mr. Huber, he's holding a skateboard like a baseball bat, and he swings it down, and I block it with my arm, trying to prevent it from hitting me, but it still hits me in the neck. And as I block it, it goes flying somewhere off in the distance. And did you stop then? No. I get lightheaded. Um, I almost pass out, and I stumble and hit the ground. Okay. Before you hit the ground, how many times were you struck? I believe twice. I'm on my back, and... Mr. Huber runs up, he, as I'm getting up, he strikes me in the neck with the skateboard a second time. Then what happened? He grabs my gun and I can feel it pulling away from me and this, I can feel the strap starting to come off my, my body. And what do you do then? I fire one shot. After you fire striking, we now know Mr. Huber, what do you do? I lower my weapon and I see Mr. Grosskreutz. He lunges at me with his pistol pointed directly at my head. Did you re-rack your weapon? I did not. That contradicted Gage Grosskreutz's testimony where he said Rittenhouse tried to reload his gun. Rittenhouse said he only fired at him when his life was in danger. Prosecutors then cross-examined Rittenhouse, questioning him about why he possessed a gun. So you're telling us that the reason that you wanted Dominic to buy you an AR-15 as opposed to a pistol is, is the only reason? Was because you felt you couldn't lawfully possess a pistol? Correct. You didn't pick out the AR-15 for any other reason? I thought it looked cool. The prosecution also tried to bring in evidence that Rittenhouse had said he wished he had a gun to shoot shoplifters in the days before he arrived in Kenosha. And you'd agree with me that you're not allowed to use deadly force to protect property, correct? Yes. But yet you have previously indicated that you wished you had your AR-15 to protect someone's property, correct? The judge suddenly sent the jury out and barked at the prosecutor, admonishing him for his line of questioning, which the judge said went against a pretrial motion about what evidence can come in. Why would you think 
that that made it okay for you without any advance notice to bring this matter before the jury. So you hear the judge there really going after the prosecution in this case. Uh, and you also hear him admonish the prosecution very loudly and very pointedly for bringing up the fact that uh, Rittenhouse uh, was silent uh, for a while before uh, he took the stand. The judge saying it's his constitutional right not to speak uh, about the case. Uh, there were a lot of fireworks in this courtroom, Jake, ones that we had not seen before the judge and the prosecutor got into it in court. All right, Sarah Seidner in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Thanks. Let's talk about this with former prosecutor Charles Coleman Jr. and defense attorney Mark Iglarsh. Uh, Mark, I'll start with you. Um, what did you make of the cross-examination so far? Uh, would you, as a defense attorney, have done anything differently? I don't know that I would have put him on. I would have been fearful that you let a teenager loose on the stand. You never know what's going to flow from his lips. Like, yeah, I thought getting an AR-15 would be cool. Like, I would be cringing at that remark. That said, I think so far it's paying off for the defense. He has had the right effect, breaking down emotionally. I mean, you can't script that any better. And trials are not about the truth. They're theater for the jurors. So they're connecting with him. And also, he has to explain that he reasonably feared death or great bodily harm and answer all the questions that they might have. And I think he's doing a very effective job. Charles, the court reporter noted that jurors were attentive earlier in the day, but as the cross-examination went on, the jurors were taking fewer notes. They were rubbing their eyes. Do you think there's a risk that the prosecutor dragged on the cross-examination too long? Well, Jake, I do think that at this point in the trial, especially with regard to this witness and his testimony, the jury's tired. The jury has sort of gotten a sense of what Rittenhouse has to say, as Mark already talked about. When Rittenhouse broke down earlier today, that was one of the, the, the key moments in his testimony in terms of setting the stage around his mental frame, his, his frame of mind. And the jury at this point, because of the way the prosecution has sort of tried to walk them through this very, very long cross-examination around his, his frame of mind, I think they're just tired. They're mentally exhausted. And, and quite frankly, I don't know how effective it's being at this point. Mark, as a defense attorney, do you think Kyle Rittenhouse was effective at convincing the jury that without question he was acting in self-defense? He felt he was under attack every time he fired his gun? I'll say this, because I can't read jurors' minds. I do know he did the best he could at his level of awareness. I don't think from what I've seen he could have done any better. Um, the biggest issue, though, is, number one, do they credit his testimony? Secondly, do they believe, then, that it equals he reasonably feared death or great bodily harm? And then the biggest issue is, but was he the aggressor? Did he start this? Why did he go there with a gun? That's always the starting point in a case like this. That said, I thought he was very effective, Jake. Charles, while being questioned uh, by his attorney, Rittenhouse uh, appeared to break down crying, as, as we've discussed, leading the judge to take a recess. The pool reporter inside the courtroom uh, noted that jurors appeared sympathetic when he broke down. Um, how do you think that, that emotion could affect the jury? Well, I think one of the things that Kyle Rittenhouse has working in his favor is that he's a 17, at the time, he was a 17-year-old young man. And I think that one of the things that 
immediately comes to the jury's mind when they see him break down in that way is the reminder that he was a teenager. I agree with Mark's point that it was a risk putting him on the stand because I, as a defense attorney, would not have wanted my client to say, I wanted an AR-15 because I thought it was cool. But I think that when you look at how the jury responded and just sort of what they connected to in terms of Rittenhouse and the emotional testimony when he broke down, it may be that the risk is worth the reward. All right. Thank you so much for your insights, both of you gentlemen. Appreciate it. Any moment, President Biden is set to speak in Baltimore about the recently passed bipartisan infrastructure bill and perhaps more. CNN's chief White House correspondent, Caitlin Collins, is traveling with President Biden in Baltimore. And Caitlin, we just learned that President Biden is set to sign this legislation on Monday, and he's going to hit the road ahead of that to try to explain to the public what exactly is in the bill. Yeah, Jake, this is the bill that he is selling here today in the Port of Baltimore as a way that he is saying that this infrastructure plan could actually help ease those supply chain gridlocks. Of course, that has been a main concern for the White House and one that they've been dealing with for months. And so you see President Biden, he's coming out here on stage just now, and they just announced that he is going to be signing this bill on Monday, Jake. And of course, that is going to be a ceremony at the White House that we are told will be bipartisan. They're going to invite Republicans and Democrats who helped to get this bill passed. As you know, you saw last week when that vote was happening, 13 Republicans did vote to pull it over the line. And so, um, of course, Jake, the question that the White House is facing now are these new numbers that came out today when it comes to inflation. And of course, those are not the numbers the White House had wanted to see because they had been hoping that the numbers would stabilize, that these prices would stabilize. And instead, you're seeing that uh, of course, over the last year, inflation has jumped over 6%, and in the last month alone, almost an entire percentage. And so that question that's facing the White House is how they deal with messaging that. And the president says it's a top priority of his to deal with. He put out a statement today saying that he recognizes the heartbreak in Americans' uh, pocketbooks when it comes to that, because what you're seeing is these household daily items are going up in prices when it comes to eggs, bacon, even chicken. All of those prices are jumping. And so what the White House has been saying, Jake, for the last several months is they believed that these higher prices were transitory, meaning they were only temporary and it was not going to last for very long. And of course, we had seen some other voices, alternative voices out there saying they did not believe that was the case. They actually thought prices would go up as people were trying to get out of this pandemic. And so now that is something that they are reckoning with. And I think one big question that the White House is considering today after seeing these new numbers is whether or not this complicates the president's agenda on Capitol Hill. Because yes, he is here today to tout that bipartisan infrastructure bill that they got passed late on Friday night that he's going to be signing on Monday. But Jake, as you know, he has a much bigger bill that he also wants to get passed. We have an expression. We used to have an expression when I served in the Senate, Senator Van Hollen. When they want to make some statement that was personal, they say, a point of personal privilege. You know, when you're talking about being a waterman working on the water, my uh, family's risen from Baltimore, came in the early 1800s, and uh, the entire Biden family worked in the water, were watermen, until uh, probably uh, 1906, 7 or 8. And my father uh, was raised here in Baltimore. They don't say Baltimore, they say Baltimore. Uh, and, uh, and so, uh, you know, although they never worked at the port, uh, they did work in the bay and, and along here. So, uh, you know, this has been, uh, this, this one of the oldest ports in the country, continuously running and one of the best ports in the country. And so, Tony, thanks for that introduction. And, uh, Mayor Scott, thanks for the passport into the city. Appreciate it very much. 
And I want to thank Governor Hogan for being here and members of the delegation. I want to start off with one of my best buddies and I think one of the most effective people in the United States Senate, Chris Van Hollen. Don't you need something? Go to him, man. He knows how to get it done. And also uh, uh, Dutch uh, Ruppersberger and uh, and a guy who I knew him when he was a kid. He doesn't remember me. I'm getting so old. Knew his dad, Senator Sarbanes and Congressman Sarbanes, Congressman Brown, and uh, all, all this delegation. You got a first-rate delegation. And uh, so I want to thank him for, uh, for being here today and, uh, and thank him for all the help in getting the, uh, the members of the House and getting the, uh, the legislation passed. It's a big deal. It's going to make a big difference. The reason I started calling this Build Back Better is we're the only country in the world, we underestimate ourselves, we're sort of down on ourselves the last 10 years or so. We're the only country in the world, as a matter of history, that every crisis we've faced, we've come out better on the other side. We not only beat it, not a joke, think about it. We've come out better than we were before we went into the crisis. And the economic and political, as well as uh, health crisis we found with COVID, I was determined when we got elected, we got to build it back better than it was because the world's changing so rapidly, so rapidly, man. We got to keep up. We're in competition to determine whether or not we can still remain the most powerful economic force in the world. And today I'm here to talk about one of the most pressing economic concerns of the American people, and it's real, and that is getting prices down, number one. Number two, making sure our stores are fully stocked. And number three, getting a lot of people back to work while tracking and tackling these two above challenges I mentioned. Today's economic report showing unemployment continued to fall, but consumer prices remain too high. Tell us, the American people, in the midst of this economic crisis, the recovery is showing strong results, but not to them. They're still looking out there. Everything from a gallon of gas to a loaf of bread costs more, and it's worrisome, even though wages are going up. We still face challenges, and we have to tackle them. We have to tackle them head on. And on the good side, we're seeing the highest growth rate in decades, the fastest decrease in unemployment at this point ever since 1950. Jobs are up, wages are up, values are up, and savings are up. But we're, we got problems, too. Many people remain unsettled about the economy, and we all know why. They see higher prices. They go to the store online, or they can't, or they go to the store or go online, and they can't find what they always want and when they want it. And we're tracking these issues and trying to figure out how to tackle them head on. My administration, with the help of the folks on my left over here, is, uh, has a plan to finish the job of getting us back to normal from the pandemic and having a stronger economy than we ever had before. Let me explain the part that the ports play said, why they're so critically important. It starts with a piece of good news. Infrastructure week has finally arrived. How many times you hear over the last five years, infrastructure week is coming. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. Anyway, but last week we, uh, we took a, a monumental step forward as a nation. And we did something long overdue and long talked about in Washington but almost never actually done. The House of Representatives passed my bipartisan infrastructure bill. Along with another plans that I'm advancing, this bill is going to reduce the cost of goods to consumers, businesses, and get people back to work, helping us build an economy from the bottom up and the middle out.
that where everybody's better off. You know, I, I'm tired of this trickle-down economy stuff. I come from Delaware, just across the line up here, and, uh, you know, we have more corporations in Delaware than every other nation in the state combined. And so I understand big business. The fact of the matter is, it's time they start paying their fair share. The fact is, you have 55 corporations last year that, in fact, made $40 billion, didn't pay a single penny in taxes. Nobody's going nobody's to pay more. If you make less than 400 grand, you're not going to pay anything more in taxes at all, period. Guarantee, including gasoline tax, not going to additional from a federal government standpoint. And so, look, this is a once-in-a-generation investment to create good-paying jobs, modernize infrastructure, turn the climate crisis into an opportunity. When I talk climate to other world leaders, I say, think one thing. We're dealing with climate, think jobs, good jobs, because that's how you beat the climate crisis. Put us on a path to win the economic competition of the 21st century. We face with China and the rest of the world. China's outspending us on research and development. China is outspending all these, these other countries are as well. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to create good paying union jobs, union, not good job, not $12 an hour, not $15 an hour, 45 bucks an hour and up with good benefits. So you can raise a family on and build the middle class out. And jobs that cannot be outsourced. You can't outsource these jobs. And I'm going to transform our transportation system with the most significant investment in passenger rail in the past 50 years. In roads and bridges, the most significant investment in 70 years. And investments in public transit, uh, we've done over the period, you know, is this going to be, it's going to modernize our ports with $17 billion in investment. $17 billion in investment. We're going to reduce congestion. We're going to address repair and maintenance backlogs, deploy state-of-the-art technologies and make our ports cleaner and more efficient. And we're going to do the same with our airports and freight rail. We're going to create jobs replacing lead water pipes that are here in Maryland as well as every other state in the union that are poisoning our kids and others. We're going to make high-speed internet affordable and available to everywhere in America. Those of you who have kids in school when we've been going this hybrid thing, some in class, some out of class, how many times if you, have a, if you don't live in an area where you have high-speed internet you can afford, you, how many times you've driven your kids to the parking lot of McDonald's and sat there going off the McDonald's internet so you could hear. No, I'm, I'm not joking. Think of this. United States of America, for God's sake. So, folks, we're going to build the first ever national network of electric vehicle charging stations all across the country. IBW is going to put in 500,000 charging stations across the country. And guess what? That's in the Recovery Act. I mean, excuse me, that, 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 that's in the Build Back Better bill which is not going to raise taxes one single cent. It's totally paid for, totally paid for by making taxes work for people who make over 400 grand and just do their fair share. I'm a capitalist, man. You should be able to be a millionaire or billionaire if you can, but pay your fair share. Pay something along the line. I'm going to get America off the sidelines on manufacturing, the manufacturing of solar panels, wind turbines, batteries to store energy and power the electric vehicles from school buses to automobiles. We're also going to make historic investments in environmental cleanup and remediation, rebuilding resilience against superstorms and droughts and wildfires and hurricanes. I traveled all over the country this year. You know, there's nine, literally $99 billion in losses because of storms this year.
$99 billion. You ever think you'd hear somebody stand up and say the Colorado River is being drained? You ever think you'd see you'd go out more wildfires in the West than the entire and lost, land lost, homes lost, to burn to the ground. I've flown over in Marine One. Than the entire state of New Jersey, from the Cape all the way to New York. That's how much we've lost in America. So far, so far. And according to the economic experts, this bill is going to ease inflationary pressures, lowering the cost of working families. 17, oh, excuse me, yes, yeah, 17 Nobel laureates in economics wrote a letter to me about 10 days ago saying this is going to affect bring inflation down, not up. But best of all, the vast majority of these jobs are going to create that we're going to create don't require a college degree. Don't require it. This is the ultimate blue-collar blueprint to rebuild America. I'm not waiting to sign a bill to start improving the flow of goods from ships to shelves. Yesterday, I announced the port of, a port plan of action. It lays out concrete steps for my administration to take over the next three months to invest in our ports and to relieve bottlenecks. This builds on the progress we've already made. Last month, I reached a deal with two of the largest ports in America, the Port of Los Angeles and Long Beach. And I met with you guys, with the uh, longshoremen there, and we worked out a deal between the port owners and the longshoremen to move toward operating those two ports. Okay, 40% of everything in the Pacific comes through those two ports. And they're lined up, ships are lined up, 70-some lined up out as far as you could see. So where they all agreed, they're going to go 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's already paying off. Last week, the number of, of, of container ships in the docks for more than nine days fell by over 20%. And now we're announcing steps to improve ports in the East Coast to provide support for the Port of Savannah, the fourth largest container port in the country, to help reduce congestion. With our help, they now have the funds they need to set up five new inland port sites in Georgia and North Carolina so goods can get closer to their final destination more quickly. And other ports across the country will have the resources they need to make these kinds of immediate investments as well. The challenge we need to meet here and my plan is going to help address, has to do with the supply chain. You hear a lot about the supply chains in the news, but frankly, not a lot of people are clear, have a clear understanding whether they have a PhD or they didn't go to school about how a supply chain works. It says easy to talk about it, but what's the impact on the economy, let alone how to fix it? It's perfectly understandable because supply chains are incredibly complex. As long as goods and materials are getting where they need to go on time. There's usually no need to worry about the supply chains. But when global disruptions hit, like a pandemic, they can hit supply chains particularly hard. COVID-19 has stretched global supply chains like never before. And suddenly, when you go to order a pair of sneakers or a bicycle or Christmas presents for the family, you're met with higher prices and long delays, or they say they just don't have any at all. The reason for that last year was, has a lot to do with most companies make their product, how they make their products today. In simple terms, supply chain is just the journey that a product takes to get to your doorstep. Raw materials, plus labor, assembly, shipping, everything it takes to create the finished product. These supply chains are complex. 
even even products as simple as a pencil can have to use the wood from Brazil, graphite from India, before it comes together at a factory in the United States to get a pencil. Sounds silly, but that's literally how it happens. So if all of a sudden you got COVID crisis in Brazil, you can't get the product maybe because the plant shuts down. That's what's happening. Products like smartphones often bring together parts from France, Italy, chips from the Netherlands, touchscreens from New York State, camera components from Japan, a supply chain that crosses dozens of countries. That's just the nature of a modern economy, the world economy. The global supply chains have helped dramatically bring down price we pay for things we buy. But they also made us much more reliant on what happens in other parts of the world. So if a factory in Malaysia shuts down due to a COVID outbreak, which they have, it causes a ripple effect that can slow down auto manufacturing in Detroit. Why? They can't get the computer chips they need. It's a climate disaster to close the port in China. It can delay shipment of furniture or clothing, reduce worldwide supply, and driving up prices here in America. And the irony is people have more money now because of the first major piece of legislation I passed. You all got checks for $1,400. You got checks for a whole range of things. If you're a mom and you have kids under the age of seven, you're getting 300 bucks a month. And if it's over, over seven to 17, you're getting $360 a month, like wealthy people used to do when they get back tax returns. It changed people's lives. But what happens if there's nothing to buy, you got more money, you compete for get, getting it there, it's, it creates a real problem. So on the one hand, we're facing new disruptions to our supplies. At the same time, we're also experiencing higher demand for goods because wages are up as well as, as, well as people have money in the bank. And because of the strength of our economic recovery, American families have been able to buy more products. And But guess what? They're not going out to dinner and lunch and going to lo local bars because of COVID. So what are they doing? They're staying home, they're ordering online, and they're buying product. Well, with more people with money buying product and less product to buy, what happens? The supply chain's the reason, and the answer is you guys. I'll get to that in a minute, but what happens? Prices go up. So we got nearly a 20% more goods coming into the country than we did before the pandemic struck. In 19 days, excuse me, COVID-19 has changed the way we spend our time and our money. More products are being delivered than ever before. That's because people have a little more breathing room than they did last year, and that's a good thing. But it also means we got higher demand for goods at the same time we're facing disruptions in the supplies to make those goods. There's a this is a recipe for delays and for higher prices, and people are feeling it. They're feeling it. Do you ever think you'd be paying this much for a gallon of gas? In some parts of California, they're paying $4.50 a gallon. That's why it's so important that we do everything in our power to stabilize the supply chain. And here's the good news. Yesterday, I spoke with the CEOs, personally spoke with the CEOs of the major retailers, Walmart, Target, and the leading freight movers, FedEx and UPS. They assured me that the shelves will be stocked in stores this holiday because they signed on a 24-7 as well. They signed on 24-7. And they provide more avenues. They're getting more of their containers off the ports quicker than ever before. Because a lot of stuff on the ports, 
that was sitting around staying there. Why? Because it no longer was the product they need at this moment. And it doesn't cost them anything to leave them sitting at the port rather than their warehouses. That's moving as well. Part of the reason why is because my port envoy, John Picari, who was a Secretary of Transportation here for two governors, John has worked with the operators, the shippers, sh shipping companies and unions, and retailers to speed commerce so they can get products to stores and to your doors and to get the shelves fully stocked this holiday season. Instead of pointing fingers, we're seeing folks start to work together. Railroads, ocean liners, labor, state and local governments. The progress has already begun, and now we've passed the bipartisan infrastructure bill, the deal. It's only going to accelerate. You've heard me say it before. Infrastructure. Infrastructure used to be rated in the United States as the best in the world when I got to the Congress. But today, according to the World Economic Forum, you know where we rank in infrastructure? 13th in the world. 12 countries in the world have more modern, efficient infrastructures than the United States of America. By investing in our roads, our bridges, our ports, and so much else, this bill is going to make it easy for companies to get goods to market more quickly. Here in Baltimore, you've got a port that's older than America itself, and it's been operating for 315 years. By the way, got any Marines or any former Marines? Raise your hand. Well, if you're here as a Marine, happy birthday. It's your 247th birthday of the United States Marine Corps. They deserve some applause. Look, this port is connected to the nation's oldest rail line, the B&O Railroad, which, which in turn relies on the tunnels that are about 126 years old, those tunnels, okay? The tunnel has become a major bottleneck to the port. Now, the Port of Baltimore will be getting a $125 million grant to upgrade that tunnel. So freight trains can come double stacked through that tunnel. Double stacked with, with, with these cars, on, with uh, uh, containers on top of them. Twice as much. They move out a hell of a lot more quickly when if they're going, if they're imports going out, but if they're exports going across the ocean. That means, in addition to more good jobs being filled, more products on shelves, delivery faster and lower prices, it's about taking a long-term view of our economy to deliver lower costs, more jobs, and ensure our shelves are stocked with product. And the longer-term view means building greater resilience to withstand both the shocks and disruptions that we can anticipate as the world continues to change. Pandemics, weather extremes, cyber attacks, Whatever else comes our way, and they're all going to come our way. You know it. We need to be ready. We need companies throughout the supply chain to create and support good-paying jobs for people that, are, that, that they can grow in, build skills in, join a union, make a decent living. That's when disruption hits. So when disruption hits, companies can quickly adapt because they're invested in their workers, their skills, their training, and a strong foundation of what I always think unions in my family, I think of dignity and respect. That's what it's about, dignity and respect. Taking a longer-term view also means making buy American, not just a promise, but an ironclad reality. When I got elected, I said, we're going to, I get to spend, quote, unquote, $600 billion of your money making everything from aircraft carriers to balloons. But guess what? So much of it has been going out and getting foreign contractors to do it. 
Well, this administration has been doing. We set a new rules to strengthen our domestic supply chains with new Made in America office within the White House. Never again should our country be left unable to produce critical goods because we don't have access to the materials we need. Never again should we have to rely on one company or one country, particularly when the country doesn't share our values. I've said it before, we're in a competition for the 21st century. Who's going to own it? America still has the most productive workers in the world and the most innovative minds in the world. That's not hyperbole, that's a fact. But other countries are closing in. We risk losing our edge if we don't step up now. This bipartisan infrastructure bill is a major step forward. It represents the biggest investment in ports in American history. And for American families, it means products moving faster and less expensively from factory floor through the supply chain to your home. The bottom line is this. With the bill we passed last week and the steps we're taking to reduce bottlenecks at home and abroad, we're set to make significant progress. We're already in the midst of historic economic recovery. And thanks to those steps we're taking, very soon we're going to see the supply chain start catching up with demand. So, not only will we see more record-breaking job growth, we'll see lower prices, faster deliveries as well. This work is going to be critical as we implement the infrastructure bill and as we continue to build the economy from the bottom up and the middle out by passing the Build Back Better plan. We need to unlock the full might and dynamism of our economy, guys, and of our people. I really mean it. And with this plan, we've set in motion what that's what's exactly we're going to do. We're going to build a better America, not a joke. We're going to lead the world again, not a joke. We're going to be in a position where we once again own the 21st century. Because when we own it, everybody does better. Everybody, not only America, but around the world. Sorry to take so long, the sun's down. You don't have any sweater on, you're going to freeze. I'm going to stop talking. Man with little, as little hair as mine just took his hat off. I put it back on. You're going to get cold if I don't get stepped down. But look, all kidding aside, I want to particularly thank the longshoremen. You guys, as an old expression up in Claymont, Delaware, where I was from, you all brought me to the dance, man. You've stuck with me from the first time I ran. And you've stepped up every time you've been asked. Every time you've been asked. And I want to personally thank you while I'm standing in front of you. God bless you all, and God bless all the workers to keep our economy going. And may God protect our troops. Thank you so very much. Thank you. There's uh, President Biden milling about with well-wishers and local leaders at the port of Baltimore. He was talking mainly focused on the recently passed bipartisan infrastructure bill, uh, which he will sign into law on Monday. Also discussing concerns that so many Americans have about rising prices and a much higher rate of inflation uh, that came out this morning. Uh, than had been anticipated. CNN's Caitlin Collins is traveling with President Biden in Baltimore. And Caitlin, um, he really has a, it's a, it's a difficult dance here because the president is trying to project optimism, good news, but also at the same time, 
uh, express empathy about some worrying economic signs uh, when it comes to higher prices and inflation. Yeah, Jake, and what you just heard from President Biden there was really his first political defense against those numbers that we saw today, showing that prices have jumped over 6% in the last 12 months alone, and of course, almost a full percent, 0.9% from September to October. Obviously not the numbers that President Biden was hoping to see this morning, as he and his aides have been making the case that they believed inflation was going to be short-term, that they believed that these prices would eventually stabilize, and clearly, of course, Jake, they're not. And so the concerns that the president has is not just inflation, but he did address it head on here in Baltimore today at the Port of Baltimore. Of course, the reason he is here is because of the supply chain gridlock that we have been talking about at length. And the president saying that that infrastructure bill that has just been passed and that he is going to sign at the White House on Monday, he believes will help with those gridlocks and those bottlenecks in the supply chain. And then, of course, in turn, help lower inflation and stabilize prices. Of course, the question of how long that takes, Jake, remains to be seen because we know officials have been saying you are likely to see inflation uh, for the next several months. We saw that economic forecast from the federal government yesterday saying they don't expect energy prices to significantly drop until next year in 2022 when they're expected to average out. And so it's all one big political combination facing President Biden. But what he tried to do here was tie it back to his economic agenda and not just that American rescue plan, that stimulus money that passed when he first took office, but also the infrastructure plan that has just passed and will soon start going into effect. And also, of course, Jake, that bigger economic package that he is trying to get passed on Capitol Hill, one that we are expecting to be a tough fight. And the president himself has acknowledged that. And so, of course, he is here today. Also, what we heard from White House officials is he wants American people who are seeing higher prices at the gasoline pump, who are having higher receipts at the grocery store, know that he is listening. And I think that was the tone he tried to strike here. Of course, that is something that has affected his poll number as well. And so they would like to see those numbers go down. How long it takes, Jake, though, remains to be seen. And let's uh, bring in Mark Zandi, who is the chief economist for Moody's Analytics. Uh, and Mark, as, as Caitlin just talked about, one of the big concerns beyond, obviously, the pain that so many Americans are feeling uh, we, with these inflationary prices uh, and with the pain at the pump uh, is what this means uh, in terms of President Biden's and the Democrats in Congress uh, attempt to have this larger safety uh, spending, safety net spending bill to combat climate change as well, the Build Back Better Act, uh, because key Democratic Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia has expressed concern that more money in the economy at a time of inflation uh, could be harmful to the economy. And he tweeted today, quote, the threat posed by record inflation to the American people is not transitory and is instead getting worse. It was, of course, uh, the reassurances of the Biden administration that it is transitory. What do you what do you make of all that? Do you agree with uh, Joe Manchin? No, uh, I don't. I don't think the uh, Build Back Better agenda will be inflationary. I, I think it's uh, designed to lift long-term ac- economic growth by improving productivity. That's public infrastructure, roads, bridges, broadband. That'll make us all more productive. That should ease inflation. And it should get more people into the workforce. You know, child care, elder care, uh, housing. That should help uh, make it easier for people to get to work. So that should also ease inflationary pressures. And a lot of what's in the Build Back Better agenda is designed to address, you know, those bottlenecks. So just as an example, housing, there's $150 billion in the plan to uh, increase uh, the amount of affordable housing that's available, rental housing. And that's obviously very key because one of the key components of, of higher inflation is the growth in rents. And, and that's a longer term problem. And this is designed to address that. 
the other thing I'd say, uh, Jake, is that a, a lot of what's in the Build Back Better plan is to lower the cost of living for lower and middle income households. So, you know, the child care uh, benefits, the ed- educational benefits, uh, elder care, you know, these are these are things that uh, will reduce the cost of living for those folks that need the help the most, people with lower incomes and, and middle income. So, no, I, I, I don't agree. I, I don't think this is going to add significantly to inflation. Uh, I, I think it will help long-term economic growth, uh, but not add to inflation. All right, Mark Zandi and Caitlin Collins before him. Thanks to both of you. We're following all the breaking news. Next to CNN exclusive about the inner circle of former Vice President Mike Pence and the insurrection. Who does the January 6th committee want to talk to? Stay with us. Breaking news now in our politics lead in a CNN exclusive. Sources are confirming that the House Select Committee investigating the deadly Capitol insurrection is looking for information from several members of former Vice President Mike Pence's inner circle. CNN's Jamie Gangel is here now with her exclusive reporting. Jamie, who exactly does the committee want to speak to? So there are at least five members of Pence's inner circle. We're told that some of the individuals close to Pence are either voluntarily reaching out to the committee or they will engage under the guise of a friendly subpoena to give them a little cover. Uh, According to sources familiar with this, uh, of course, the committee's interested in speaking to them. But this is the first time we're really hearing that people close to Mike Pence uh, may be willing to engage. It's we we have not heard that before. Let me give you three names. former Chief of Staff Mark Short, former National Security Advisor Keith Kellogg, former General Counsel Greg Jacob. We reached out to all of them and and others on the list. People either did not return our call or declined to comment. One person did comment, and that's the chairman of the committee, Benny Thompson. We asked if people were being cooperative. He hedged a little bit. He said, well, yes and no. I don't want to just say yes when there have been some people who clearly have said no. So we've had, you know, people on both sides. But bottom line, Jake, the committee really wants to speak to these people. And we are getting the sense for the first time that inner circle of Pence World is engaging with the committee. And, you know, let's take a step back. People might not know these individuals, uh, Mark Short, Greg Jacob and and, uh, Keith Kellogg, but... Some of them are very close to Pence. So Mark Short, chief of staff, critical fact witness. Obviously, he was with the former vice president in the days leading up to January 6th. He was up on Capitol Hill on January 6th with him. You can you can see him walking there. He knows exactly what was going on uh, in the days leading up and on that day. Greg Jacob, a name most people might not recognize, former chief counsel. He is a critical witness, I'm told, because he's the person who pushed back on Trump's lawyer, John Eastman, who created this memo saying that Pence could overturn the results. Greg Jacob, again, a critical witness. Keith Kellogg was Pence's uh, national security advisor. But that day, He was actually on January 6th with Donald Trump all day in the White House. He saw what Donald Trump was doing during the insurrection and what he was saying. Uh, The first Pence inner circle person to be subpoenaed. 
And, and uh, I, I want to show you something that you brought to our attention. On the night of the insurrection, right. Pence's official Twitter account tweeted out these pictures of then-Vice President Pence meeting with Capitol Police. Very few people even remember that this happened, but this just underscores the big difference between how Pence's office responded to the attack and how Trump did. I mean, remember, Trump for days wouldn't even put right. the flags at half-staff uh, after Officer Sicknick died. Right. I think these pictures are extraordinary. They're sort of hiding in plain sight. They put them out there. Look at them closely. He's standing there surrounded by Capitol Police officers, completely different from what then-President Trump was doing. I think it also speaks to the political balancing act that former Vice President Pence is now walking. It's no secret he may want to run for president in 2024, how does he balance what he did that day and still hold on to the Trump base that he wants if he's going to run for it's office? It's a, a difficult, if not impossible, task. Because, I mean, if, just to put up that tweet again, if we could, Pence thanks the Capitol Police, quote, for keeping us safe today, just to, not, not to make, put too fine a point on it, for keeping us safe from the in, deranged MAGA mob. That's who he's talking about keeping him safe from. Correct. A hundred percent. It is two very different pictures. What Mike Pence did that day and Donald Trump, who apparently was sitting there for 187 minutes just watching this. Yeah. Popping the popcorn. Jamie Gangel, thanks so much. Sure. President Biden just made the hard, hard sell for infrastructure. But will inflation make it difficult to sell it to voters? The president's chief of staff, Ron Klain, will join us live next day with us. Welcome to the lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour's authorities just gave an update on the deadly Astro World Festival. What we're learning about the investigation that's ahead, plus more than $100 million on hand, the massive fundraising effort underway. As Donald Trump considers running for president again, but leading this hour, President Biden minutes ago touting the bipartisan infrastructure bill, which he plans to sign into law on Monday. President Biden also selling the rest of his legislative agenda, the social spending bill, in moments. White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain will join us live. But first, let's get right to CNN's Caitlin Collins, who's live in Baltimore with President Biden. Caitlin, as much as the president is trying to sell his infrastructure bill, he's also urging Congress to pass his social safety net bill, the Build Back Better Act. How is he threading this needle amid news that Americans are seeing the worst inflation in 30 years? Well, Jake, a big question facing the White House is whether or not these new inflation numbers that came out today are going to complicate the president's path to getting that second larger bill passed. Because you've already seen people like key Democratic Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia talking about this, saying this is a problem that D.C. needs to focus on for the American people. And President Biden, to his credit, came out here at the Port of Baltimore. And one of the first things that he talked about were those high numbers that came out today, Jake, of course, showing that over the last 12 months, consumer prices have jumped by 6%. And in the last month alone, 0.9%. And so, of course, that is affecting things for Americans from everything to buying gas to buying eggs and bacon at the grocery store. And so the president today said that consumer prices are still too high. But the way that he was talking about it, Jake, was talking about selling this infrastructure plan that he just got passed and is going to sign on Monday, hoping it can alleviate some of the supply chain gridlock. And of course, their they're hope in the end, Jake, is that it lowers those consumer prices. All right, Caitlin Collins, thanks so much. Let's discuss with White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain. So, Ron, let's uh, let's talk about inflation. It's at a 30-year high, up 6.2%. That's worse 
than had been feared. 6.2% in just the last year. Senator Joe Manchin's Manchin's views on this uh, must be of some concern to you because he is pointing to the rising inflation rate as a possible reason to pause on some parts of Biden's agenda. Today, Manchin tweeted, quote, by all accounts, the threat posed by record inflation to the American people is not transitory and is instead getting worse. From the grocery store to the gas pump, Americans know the inflation tax is real and D.C. can no longer ignore the economic pain Americans feel every day, unquote. Obviously, you need his vote. Do you think that Build Back Better in its current form is essentially dead because of inflation? Quite the opposite, Jake. I think that Senator Manchin's concerns make the strongest possible case for Build Back Better. Uh, One of the biggest expenses families face is child care. Our bill will cut the cost of child care for middle class families in half. Another thing that people are really feeling the pinch of is prescription drugs. Our bill, Build Back Better bill, lowers the cost of prescription drugs, puts a cap on what seniors pay for their drugs. People are pinched by uh, elder care costs. It brings that down. By health insurance premiums, the bill brings that down. And of course, for families with children, the bill provides a tax cut of $250 per child per month. So I think if your concern is the cost of living, it's a concern we have here at the White House. It's a concern Senator Manchin shares. The Build Back Better bill is the best answer we have to bring those costs down. By the way, it also does it without adding a penny to the federal debt. It's fully paid for and without raising a penny of taxes on families making less than $400,000 a year. So, but Senator Manchin uh, is of the opinion that at a time of inflation, like now, putting more money, and this would be, I think, $1.75 trillion over the next few years, more money into the economy could actually have a harmful effect and, and have inflation increase. Why? Well, but Jake, the bill doesn't put any more money into the economy on net for it, 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 in the House form, it's about a $1.8 trillion of new spending paid for by taking $1.8 trillion out of the economy from the big corporations that pay no taxes at all, from the richest Americans who will see their taxes go up. So it doesn't add any new money to the economy, Jake. What it does is it makes sure that our federal spending meets the, the things that families really need, bringing down the cost of child care, bringing down the cost of drugs, bringing down the cost of elder care, bringing down the cost of preschool, cutting taxes for middle-class families. That doesn't fuel uh, inflation. It does the opposite. It brings down costs for everyday people. That's your argument. Does, does Joe Manchin agree? Well, we'll see when Joe Manchin votes. What I'll tell you is it's not just my argument. Thirteen Nobel Prize-winning economists said that our bill eases long-term inflationary pressure. So it's not just Ron Klain who's saying this or the White House who's saying this but some of the world's leading economists who agree that this plan will help bring down long-term inflationary pressures. Former Treasury Secretary under Bill Clinton, Larry Summers, has been sounding the alarm about inflation since February. Uh, And he has been one of these individuals saying that this big agenda, ambitious agenda from President Biden, uh, was creating the risk of an inflation spike. Now, Secretary Yellen told me three weeks ago, that, quote, monthly rates of inflation have already fallen substantially from the very high rates that we saw in the spring and early summer, unquote. That was three weeks ago. The CPI, the Consumer Price Index, is now back up to 0.9 percent, matching its high in June 2021. Is it possible that today's inflation news proves that Larry Summers was correct and Janet Yellen incorrect? Well, I want to quote a leading source on this topic, which said today that the government spending of this year 
uh, it, to say that the government spending this year caused an increase in gas and food prices is false. That was the CNN fact check that was out this morning uh, on CNN about these, these claims. Look, I know that uh, former Secretary Summers was a, critic, was a critic of the earlier legislation, the rescue plan. I disagree with him on that. But I think uh, Secretary Summers has been very clear about the fact that when you take uh, action to make the economy work better for people and you fully pay for it by doing things like a provision in the Build Back Better plan that Secretary Summers recommended, increasing IRS enforcement on high-income taxpayers who just refuse to pay their taxes and get away with it, those kind of measures help control uh, federal spending. There are sound long-term measures for our fiscal soundness. And so I think we're on the right path here to help working families, to help middle-class families, and to curb uh, this inflation. So according to a new Monmouth University poll, about 42% of those polled say middle-class families have not benefited at all under President Biden. That's up from 33% who said the same in July. Um, You know, I understand why a lot of them might feel that way because of all the increase in prices, uh, gas, used cars, bacon, beef, chicken, eggs, furniture, TVs, kids shoes, electricity, rent. What, what do you say to these Americans who say, you know what, we're, we're not feeling any help yeah. from President Biden? Well, that same poll showed that 52 percent of middle class people thought that 52 percent of middle class families would benefit going forward from the bill the president is going to sign on Monday, the infrastructure bill, which will help deal with the supply chain problems we're having, get goods to market more efficiently, less expensively, create jobs in the process, and of course with the rest of our legislation. So I have no beef with voters, pardon the pun, who say, look, the recovery is making progress, but not far enough along for me yet. That's why we aren't stopping work now. That's why we're working hard to move the recovery forward. There was a second economic report out today, in addition to the inflation report, a report about jobs. It showed that unemployment is falling at the fastest rate since the 1950s. We've made progress on the jobs recovery. We now need to tackle inflation, supply chains, uh, making sure there are workers available for the jobs that haven't yet been filled. Uh, We're making a lot of progress. The economy is much better than it was a year ago, but we have a lot of work left to do, and that's what we're working on. A new CNN poll, I'm sure you saw, found that a majority of Americans, 58 percent, believe that President Biden is not paying attention to the nation's most important issues. Uh, What those issues are 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 fairly obvious. 36 percent say the economy is the most pressing problem, followed by coronavirus, immigration, climate change, national security and so on. But the economy far and above. even Democrats uh, are, are walking away from the idea that Biden has the right pr- priorities. Ninety percent in April of Democrats polled said that the Biden had the right priorities. Now it's 75 percent. So how do you how do you fix this? Obviously, I cover you guys every day. You do this every day and you are talking about the economy. You are talking uh, about uh, coronavirus. But there's obviously some sort of disconnect here. Well, look, I do think, as I said, Jake, I think things are a lot better in this country than they were a year ago with regard to COVID, with regard to the economy. But we have a lot of work left to do. And I think voters are in a show me, don't tell me mode. I don't think they really care as much about what I'm saying on TV or what you're saying on TV as much as they do about us putting results uh, into their lives. Uh, This bill the president's going to sign on Monday, uh, the infrastructure bill, I think is a big step forward in terms of dealing with a lot of the longstanding issues in this country. And I think the Build Back Better bill, 
which we hope the House will vote on, scheduled to vote on this coming week when they get back from Veterans Day recess, is another thing. Uh, Again, I have no objection to voters saying, look, I don't want to just hear speeches about it. I want to see action. We got action just before Congress went out. After four years, and frankly, 50 years, of Washington promising that there would be an infrastructure week, there'd be action on that, we finally got that bill passed. It'll be signed on Monday. We have to continue to work on the other economic problems. And of course, we have to continue our work on COVID. Just this past week, we rolled out the vaccine for ages 5 to 11. This is the only country in the world, ours is the only government in the world, that has bought enough vaccine for every child in this country to get vaccinated. We've gotten about a million kids vaccinated in just the first few days of this program. We're going to see that continue to grow in the days ahead. Uh, We have problems to solve, but we're solving them. All right. I'm getting the hook from your team there. White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain, really appreciate your taking our questions. Hope to have you back soon. Thanks, Jake. Appreciate it. Let's go back to Kenosha, Wisconsin, where the prosecution is cross-examining Kyle Rittenhouse, who is def- testifying in his own defense. Frame 468. This is an exhibit which consists of, what's the number, 732? 729 frames from the BG on the go video that we just watched. This was prepared by James Armstrong of the State Crime Lab. I'm not going to show all 729, but I'd like to start at frame 468. And we're going to go frame by frame from there until frame 500. Mr. Stute, could you please slowly advance frame by frame until I tell you to stop? Mr. Rittenhouse, this is immediately after Gage Grosskreutz has stopped in front of you and you are doing something with your firearm at that moment. Do you recall that? Yes. You were asked some questions about what you were doing at that moment. Is it fair to say that you turn your firearm over and you're looking at it, you're examining it? Yes. But your testimony is you didn't do anything to actually manipulate it at that moment. Correct. Is that fair to say? Correct. Okay. Please continue. Frame 500 shows you firing your AR-15 towards Gage Grosskreutz. At this particular moment, he does not have that pistol pointed towards you, does he? He does. His left leg has stepped across, in an, not directly towards you, but to the side of you, correct? Yes. He's reaching in with his left arm towards you, correct? Yes. He never steps back and puts the gun in both hands in a ready aim position towards you, does he? He doesn't do that. He never takes that gun with his right hand and stands there and holds it out with his right hand in front of him and aims it directly at you, does he? No, he does this pointing it directly at my head. And you thought that's the way he was going to shoot you? Yeah. You thought he ran up close to you to, to shoot you? Yes. You understand that he could have taken that gun if he wanted to and shot you from 10, 15, 20 feet away, right? 
can you refer? Sorry, I'm have, trying to understand the question. You're, you understand that a pistol like that doesn't need to be right up close to someone to shoot, right? Yes. It can shoot from 10, 15, 20 feet away, right? Yes. Mr. Grosskreutz could have stopped 10, 15, 20 feet away if he wanted to shoot you and fired his pistol at you, couldn't he have? He could have, but he didn't. And your testimony is that you believed he ran up close to you and reached in with his left hand, with his gun in his right hand, because that was his way of using this gun to shoot you? Yes. Did you think he was reaching in to grab your gun? No. You didn't think he was going to take your gun away, did you? I thought he was going to shoot me. With his pistol? Yes. Which he never actually does. Correct? Correct. He never fires that gun at you at all? No. In fact, in this entire sequence of events, no one ever fired a gun at you, did they? Mr. Zeminski fired a gun from behind me. Did Mr. Zeminski fire that gun at you? I believe so. What do you base that on? Did you see it? The video. Did you see it? No. That's You're talking about back when the incident with Mr. Rosenbaum happens, correct? Yes. That happened while you and Mr. Rosenbaum are running across the car source lot, correct? Yes. At that moment in time, you didn't see Joshua Zeminski fire a shot, did you? No. You heard a gunshot, right? Yes. But you had no idea who fired it. I believed it was Mr. Zeminski. So that gunshot did not at all factor into your decision to kill Joseph Rosenbaum, did it? No, Mr. Rosenbaum trying to steal my gun did. So you didn't think that was a gunshot from Joseph Rosenbaum? No. You knew he didn't have a gun? Oh, I see what your question is now. You you didn't think that the shot which had been fired supposedly by Mr. Zeminski had been fired by Mr. Rosenbaum. Exactly. Okay, okay. So you heard a gunshot. You now know that was Joshua Zeminski based on watching the videos, right? Yes. But at the time, you didn't think that was Joseph Rosenbaum firing that shot, did you? No. You knew Joseph Rosenbaum didn't have a gun, right? Yes. And you certainly would agree with me that you don't have the right to kill Joseph Rosenbaum for something Joshua Zeminski does, correct? Yes. When you heard that gunshot, you didn't know whether it was fired at you or up in the air or at Rosenbaum or anyone else, did you? I heard it from behind me, but I didn't. You didn't know where it was aimed? Correct. Correct. You didn't feel it hit you? Correct? Correct. You didn't hear it ricochet anywhere near you? Correct? Correct. You received no indication that that gunshot was going to put your life in danger, correct? I don't know. There were gunshots going off all night long, weren't there? Sort of. Firecrackers, gunshots? yeah. Hard to tell the difference? Yeah. Right after you kill Rosenbaum, there's three shots right after that, aren't there? Yes. From very close to where you were? Yes. Yet you don't turn and shoot anybody there after you hear those, did you? No. So... Getting back to my original question. In this entire sequence of events, no one ever fired a shot at you, did they? No. After you kill Anthony Huber, shoot Gage Grosskreutz, 
and attempt to fire those two shots at the person who, who jumped at you, you got up and you walked away, didn't you? Yes. And you're about, what, a block away from the police line? Yes. And you know that police line's there because you're running towards it. Yes. And there's really nothing in the road between you and that police line, is there? At, after the shooting? Everybody no. scatters? No, nothing in the road. So you have a clear line of sight from where you did those shootings to those law enforcement vehicles, correct? Yes. And you still have your AR-15? Yes. And the crowd is pretty much run after they hear the sh- sh- shots, right? Yes. You still have your medic bag? Yes. Correct? Yes. You never once offer to help anybody that you just shot, correct? I don't. Correct, you don't? Correct. Anthony Huber is lying there over on the ground after you shot him once in the chest, correct? Yes. You didn't know at that point whether he was alive or dead, did you? I didn't. You never went over to check, did you? No. You didn't know whether it was possible to save his life at that moment or not, did you? I didn't. And you didn't even care. You just kept on walking. Correct? I kept walking to get to the police line. Gage Grosskreutz, right after you shoot him in the arm, is yelling, I need a medic. Did you hear that? Yes. That's in the videos, isn't it? Yes. You don't do anything to help him, do you? No. You just decide to get out of there as fast as you can. Correct? Yes. If you had seen someone running up the street with a gun and the crowd was saying that that person just shot someone, like they were saying about you, you would have taken action to stop them yourself, wouldn't you? No, I wouldn't have. You're running around putting out fires, aren't you? Yes. A shooting's far more serious than a fire, isn't it? Yes. You took it upon yourself to do the things that the police and the fire weren't doing that, fire departments weren't doing that night, correct? I helped put out fires, but I wouldn't say that. You went around offering medical service because you didn't think there were EMTs or EMS that would be able to come in there, correct? Yes. So you took it upon yourself to do the things that you didn't think the police or fire could do, correct? I wouldn't say I took it upon myself, but I, would, I was helping people with first aid and putting out fires at businesses. So if you saw someone running with a gun and everybody said, that guy just shot someone, you would have taken your AR-15 and tried to stop him, wouldn't you? It goes to the crowd's reaction to him, Your Honor. I think you would have reacted the same way. The, the crowd is important in terms of it's a factor that bears on the some of the counts as to what the surroundings were. Uh, otherwise, the crowd is unimportant, and what the crowd, what he might have done vis-a-vis the crowd is, uh, I, I don't see where we're going. Understood. When you got back to that police line, and they, what'd you say, they, they pepper sprayed you? I believe so, but I don't remember it. They told you to get out of the road? Yes. Because they were going in there yes. to do what you hadn't done, which is to try and help the people that you just shot, right? Yes. And then you went after, back after that to the 59th Street car source, didn't you? Yes. And you told them that you just shot someone? Yes. Someone, meaning an individual person, correct? I wasn't meaning individual. I was saying I just shot someone. I just shot someone. You were told by Nick Smith 
that the police were coming to your location, to the 59th Street car source, right? I don't recall that. And yet, you decided to flee, didn't you? No. You didn't stick around for the police, did you? I, I went to go turn myself into the Antioch Police Department. A couple of hours later. An hour later. Wasn't a couple hours. He knows what time it was. I'm asking the witness if the witness can answer. Uh, go ahead. You can answer, sir. It was a couple of hours later, wasn't it? No. And in between leaving that location in downtown Kenosha and getting to Antioch, you were looking at social media, weren't you? No, I wasn't. My phone was dead. You had heard from other people that your name was out there, right? Later on in the evening, I believe I heard something, but no. You knew that your picture was out there, right? No. You're telling me, as you sit here under oath, that after those shootings, between then and the time you turned yourself into the Antioch Police Department, you had no idea that there was social media out there with your picture and your name as the shooter. I'm trying to recall, but... I, I can't, I'm, tr I'm trying to remember. I'm sorry, I don't remember. I have no further questions. I have right. nothing on that, uh, You may step down, sir. <laughs> Your Honor, I have a um, But before that, call that witness, I need to use the men's room. How about a, about a five to 10 minute break? Please don't talk about the case during the break. You may either use the jury room or you may remain down here uh, in the library. Well, we've been listening into the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse in Kenosha, Wisconsin. They are taking a five to ten minute break. We're told the prosecution is continuing its cross-examination of Rittenhouse after he Somewhat surprisingly, he took the stand today in his own defense. It's kind of a rare event for a defendant to take the stand unless, uh, unless of course, he if is convinced it will uh, be good for him. CNN's Omar Jimenez is live outside the courthouse in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And uh, Omar, Carl Rittenhouse, he's been on the stand for most of the day. Um, what are your biggest takeaways so far? Yeah, Jake. I mean, well, as soon as he took the stand, we knew this was going to be this was the most anticipated moment of the trial so far. And I think it has lived up to that so far. We've seen questioning that has taken the entire day, basically, at this point, at points. Rittenhouse actually had to exit the stand because he got so emotional describing what led up to the mo what led up to the sequence, I should say that went to the moments of the killing of Joseph Rosenbaum. He was the first of two people killed back in August 2020 here, and he began to describe the fact that he was being surrounded and actually could not continue because of how hysterical he was getting with his emotions. They came back and the questioning <coughs> continued as the defense tried to paint a picture, as they alluded to in their opening statements, that this was nothing more than self-defense because everything he did, he had to do it. Then we got in a little bit of trouble with the judge here in regards to the prosecution, because at one point, the, uh, the prosecutors, when they had the chance to cross-examine Rittenhouse, basically questioned why Rittenhouse had not said anything up until this point. And the judge 
chastised the prosecution, saying that the the uh, the Rittenhouse has the right to remain silent. And then, not long after, the prosecution brought up an incident that the judge previously had not allowed into this case. And so the judge stopped it altogether. The defense said they were going to call for a mistrial because of this and did file a motion, as they mentioned, or at least said they planned to. And the judge is now taking it under consideration. And right now, again, as right before you came to me, the prosecution was continuing their questioning as part of cross-examination. And uh, the day will continue after this break. All right. Omar Jimenez in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Thank you so much. Let's bring back our legal experts, Charles Coleman and Mark Iglars and Charles, uh, just to remind our viewers, you're a former prosecutor. Um, we, uh, we're watching this trial, and the prosecution is trying to make the case that Kyle Rittenhouse did not have to use lethal force against the three individuals he shot, two of them fatally. Has the prosecution succeeded at making the argument in any of this cross-examination uh, that Kyle Rittenhouse did not feel as though his life was in danger. Well, Jake, as we're watching this trial, one of the things that you have to keep in mind is that a significant part of that defense, the self-defense and claim in this trial, is going to be based around Kyle Rittenhouse's state of mind. And so what the prosecution is attempting to do is slowly and surely try to sort of pick these different points that they will then go back to on summation and on closing arguments to talk about, well, his state of mind was this or try to explain he could not have thought that at this point and so on and so forth. The problem with that, although while it is technically sound, is that it's boring and it's not working for the jury. The, the gripping testimony, the emotional testimony occurred when Kyle Rittenhouse was talking about how he feared for his life. So while the defense, I mean, so while the prosecution is currently chipping away or trying to identify these isolated moments where his conduct in the moment may not make sense, given the chaotic scene and everything else that was going on at the time, I think that's going to be a very, very hard sell for this jury who at this point in, in Rittenhouse's testimony, quite frankly, may be on his side. And Mark, uh, you're a defense attorney. Um, we saw the district attorney uh, try to back Rittenhouse into corners uh, several times. One, one moment that, that struck out we just saw, uh, that stuck out to me that we just saw, was somebody approached um, Rittenhouse and was holding his gun like this, uh, you know, like they do in a movie, kind of like up and to the side, not how somebody actually normally who knows anything about firearms would fire a gun, but like that. And the district attorney was arguing, you really thought he was going to shoot you like that? And at least for me, I was I was thinking, I don't know that if somebody approached me with a gun holding it like that, I would think that he wasn't just because that's not how people hold guns if they know anything about firearms. How, how effective do you think uh, this cross-examination has been? Not very at all. You know, desperate times calls for desperate measures. And to answer your original question, no, I don't think the prosecution has made the case that this wasn't self-defense. In fact, throughout their case, their own witnesses seem to establish that anyone would reasonably fear death or great bodily harm, which is why I don't know that I would have called this defendant as a witness. But since they did, he's actually doing really well. He's giving the prosecution the answers that they need. You know, softballs, he's saying, no, yeah, yeah, right. Yes, yes, yes. No. However, at that point, I really did believe I was in fear of death or great bodily harm. I think he's doing an amazing job. And this case is not one that has scientific evidence. 
There's no video clearly establishing what happened like we do see in other cases. There's no busload of nuns who followed everybody around so we have credible, honest testimony. You've got finger pointing and his testimony seems to be credible. His effect seems to be genuine. And I think these jurors can't exclude the fact that he reasonably feared death or great bodily harm. All right, Mark Aglarsh and uh, Charles Coleman Jr., thanks to both of you. We appreciate it. Houston officials just gave an update on that horrific Astroworld concert tragedy. What they say may have contributed to the chaos is next. Breaking news in the national lead. Moments ago, Houston police gave their first news conference since Saturday in that horrific Astroworld concert tragedy. Eight people were killed, many others crushed in what survivors describe as a whirlpool of people moving toward the stage. Let's go live to CNN's Josh Campbell at Houston Police Headquarters where that press conference just wrapped up. Josh, after several days of silence, the police chief is finally clarifying the response of his department and his officers. Tell us more. Yeah, Jake, we're learning about the police presence that day. The chief coming out and saying that this ultimately was not a uh, an event that the city was responsible for. It was a county event. But we're learning that HPD, the Houston Police Department, had a lot of resources there, over 500 officers in and around that area. But the chief saying, answering one question that we had about whose ultimate responsibility was it to bring that concert to a halt. He said that was up to the production team, the organizers of the event, in communication with public safety officials, but saying that that wasn't a responsibility of the police. And we're also learning, of course, we've been uh, reporting on what the Wall Street Journal was saying, that perhaps investigators uh, were concerned that some of those concert goers were injured by laced drugs, uh, perhaps uh, uh, laced with fentanyl. I asked the chief about that directly. He said that at this point, they're not ruling anything out. That remains under investigation. And finally, there is this question about permits, how a permit was issued. I asked the chief directly. We know that Travis Scott, the rapper, had these two previous incidents where he was actually cited for crowd control issues. I asked the chief uh, whether or not future permits should be granted. Take a listen to what he said. Oh, that those individuals that are making that decision and how that, they consider all this, okay? Um, we have eight people dead and, and, and two in the hospital. Very critical. It's not... So the chief saying it's not his responsibility, but those who issue the permits should look into that. And then finally on this point, of course, we saw that video of these people rushing through past entrances the morning of that concert. The chief saying they were actually trying to get to a merchandise area. But of course, that incident raising a lot of security questions where security was so overwhelmed that morning. Could that have been a precursor to what happened that night? And Josh, the police chief was also asked about the security guard who had reported feeling something like a prick in his neck. What did the police chief say? Yeah, that earlier reporting that the chief himself had mentioned raised a lot of eyebrows, that perhaps uh, a security officer there was stabbed or injected with something. The police chief coming out today and saying that has been ruled out. After conducting an interview with that person, the security officer was taken to a medical uh, tent after losing consciousness, but saying that, no, there was no uh, injection. That's something, again, that they're ruling out. But again, as it relates to other types of drugs that may have impacted some of those injured, that is still very much on the table, according to the chief. All right, Josh Campbell uh, in Houston. Uh, We're going to take a quick break. Then when we come back, we're going to talk to an attorney uh, who is uh, representing plaintiffs suing in the Astroworld case. Thank you so much. Stay with us. (laughs) 
We're back with more in our breaking news. Moments ago, Houston police were giving an update into that horrific and deadly concert tragedy over the weekend. I want to bring in now Thomas J. Henry. He's an attorney who has filed multiple lawsuits on behalf of some of the victims in the Astroworld tragedy. Uh, thanks for joining us. Moments ago, the police chief said that Live Nation had a job of securing mosh pits directly in front of the stage. How much fault do you put on the promoter for the actions of, of the crowd? I think Live Nation and Astroworld and the performers all have responsibility. Uh, Astroworld has an event plan. And uh, Jake, uh, one of the quotes from the plan is that Astroworld as an organization will be prepared to evaluate and respond appropriately to emergency situations. What did we have 37 minutes before Drake and Travis Scott got off stage? They had a mass casualty incident. And within this event policy, they were required to give notice, to shut down the concert. There are procedures in place to do that. And I want to tell you, I don't think they shut down the concert because they wanted their surprise guest, Drake, to perform. And that was more important than the mass casualties they knew were occurring 37 minutes continuously. The uh, concert was declared a mass casualty incident, as you know, at 9.38 Friday night p- local time. Video shows Travis Scott pausing the show and, and trying to note problems that he saw in, in the crowd. Here's, here's a little clip of that. Oh, 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 oh. Just play it slowly. We need somebody to help him. Somebody passed out right here. Somebody passed out right here. Hold on, don't touch him, don't touch him. Everybody just back up. Security, somebody help. Jump in real quick. Keep going. Just keep it just right. Now, the video doesn't make clear if the concert ended at that moment, but you note even after the mass casualty incident was declared, he did keep performing, and rapper Drake also came back on stage. Do you have evidence that these performers knew of the severity of what was happening in the crowd and kept going? Yeah, I think the video evidence clearly establishes that uh, they had a bird's eye view of what was going on. In fact, you can even you know, tell from his own admissions he saw people uh, that had problems. And what did he do when that... Uh, person who was in trouble uh, was being helped, he immediately told the crowd. He turned around within just a short period of time and said, shake the ground. And so he had a complete disregard for people's safety. And uh, their producers, they have a communication system in place within this plan. The Astro World plan has a communication system. And in following that plan, there can be no doubt that Travis Scott and Drake all were communicated with about the mass casualties. It's his policy. That is that policy is followed in conjunction uh, with Live Nation because they are doing this concert and this program together. So I have no doubt that uh, they were aware that there was mass casualties and they continued that concert regardless. And your firm has filed at least 110 lawsuits. How high do you think this number is going to get? Are all are all of these on behalf of individuals who are in the crowd? Yes, I represent now about 150 people. Um, That lawsuit will be amended uh, day by day. It's about 110 people at the moment that I represent in that lawsuit. Uh, Probably by tomorrow at lunch, it'll be about 150. By the end of the day, I would expect, based on the trends I am seeing with people reaching out to my law firm, that it may get as high as 200, which is not surprising because you're talking about a small area where people were 
uh, condensed in, and you had thousands of people in a very small area. Before the Astroworld Festival, uh, it's been reported Travis Scott uh, faced criminal charges twice before for inciting his concert crowds, once in 2018, another time in 2015. Do do you think this is specific to Travis Scott, uh, or do you think that this this could have happened with any performer? Well, I think that um, that's speculation. What we know is there should have been a plan in place. The plan wasn't followed. It's a 54-page plan. I have that. I don't know if you've seen that plan. But if you read the plan, you can see every step of the way there were failures. And based on the information coming into the, the event, uh, the mass casualties, there should have been steps taken to protect the crowd. And those steps were not taken. So uh, can it happen at concerts? Yeah, but there are plans and procedures in place to safeguard people, and they were not followed in this situation. And especially... Travis Scott has a horrible reputation for inciting crowds and having a disregard for safety and a disregard for security. So even more so, their own plan should have been followed and it was disregarded. Thomas J. Henry, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Turning now to our politics lead, quote, presidents are not kings and plaintiff is not president. That blow to former President Trump from a federal judge last night halting Trump's efforts to block White House documents that could potentially shed light on his activities leading up to and the day of the deadly insurrection. It's a win for the January 6th House committee, though Trump is going to appeal it. But as Trump teases a possible 2024 run for president, CNN's Tom Foreman reports, the Republican Party and its donors need to decide whether or not they want to jump back on the Trump train. Thank you, It's a whopping amount, even in big money politics. Close to a million dollars a week, according to the Washington Post. That is how fast donations are pouring in for the man who lost the last presidential election and has yet to declare he's in the next one. One of the things raising money this early does is it shows his power to the party. And I think you're seeing the, that effect in terms of people being afraid to take him on. Team Trump is raking in donations through the Save America Political Action Committee, the Save America Joint Fundraising Committee, the Make America Great Again Again Super PAC, and others. Collectively, his political groups reported more than $100 million on hand this past summer. Hillary conceded. I never conceded. Never. Powering it all is an energetic campaign of direct solicitation emails, promising signed baseballs, T-shirts, Christmas decorations, like this stocking for $50, all feeding off supporters who have embraced the big lie. The election was stole from us. Trump won in a landslide. And there are ads, especially on Facebook, where Trump himself has been banned, but his fundraisers have not, calling the 2020 election corrupt, tainted, and Trump the true president. Some have continued the controversial practice of pre-checked boxes, which can unwittingly lead supporters into automatically increasing their donations. As far as spending the sizable war chest, the Trump Organization has reported giving little to Republican candidates, even as the party hopes to regain congressional majorities in next year's midterm election. And when it comes to 2024, the limits on donors, the demand for reporting, the rules about spending get more complicated the moment he declares his candidacy. So he's still playing coy. Make America great again. Dash slash comma again. Make America great again again. I don't know. We got a late notice from one of the Trump spokespeople who say he does indeed remain committed 
to helping the Republican Party retake Congress next year. And they say nobody else is better at that than the former president. That said, what you don't hear anymore, Jake, is what Donald Trump started his campaign with, a pledge that he was so wealthy, he'd pay for everything himself and not be out <laughs> shilling for money like other politicians. That seems to have gone by the wayside. Uh, along with many other things. Tom Foreman, thank you so much. Let's discuss with my august panel. So, Paul, uh, former President Trump just teased a 2024 run uh, to Fox, saying, quote, I think a lot of people will be very happy, unquote, with his uh, decision. Um, how does this affect the Republican Party? Well, uh, he's, I think he's going to run. And that's not just me from the outside. Sure. Talk to people close to Trump. They say it's close to 100 percent certainty that he's going to run. Uh, that's going to chill, I think, any other, many other Republicans from getting in the race. And it's going to further solidify uh, what was once a great political party is now which has become a, a political death cult of personality around Donald Trump. And I, I, it's lamentable for the Republicans. It's dangerous for the country. But I think it's almost certain to happen. And, and what, as a Republican, what do, you, what do you think? Like Paul said, people around him close to Trump are indicating and signaling that he will run. And keeping that conversation alive and keeping the rumors around, that helps with the fundraising. It helps with, with them growing the supporters for Trump as if he needs that help. And as, as he said, it freezes out the field. The concern from a traditional Republican or a rational Republican standpoint is, under Trump and his leadership, we lost the House, the Senate, and the White House. And his getting back on board is not going to change the dynamic. If we didn't learn anything else, we learned an important lesson in Virginia. Mm -hmm. People have gone past the Trump train. They, they are going back to the policies that unite this party and this country and not the personalities that divide us. And what we need to do moving forward as Republicans is not just look at who is going to rev up the base and be the strong supporter and candidate for the primary we need someone who's going to win in the general election. And I don't see that's the way to, to do it with Donald Trump. You know, you saw Chris Christie out there, though, saying, you know, I'm I'm I'm, I'm not going to let Donald Trump determine my potential presidential candidacy. If you don't think you can take on Donald Trump, you shouldn't run. And so he's saying to others, you know, don't let him freeze the field. Uh, however, as we all know, Donald Trump is hugely popular with the Republican base, and that's why a lot of folks are hanging back. But even if he, he did decide to run, as we're talking about here, and, and he may have already said, uh, but even if he says that he will be running, you're talking about freezing the field. There are realistically Republicans like Nikki Haley who are mm -hmm. unlikely to run if right. he gets into the race. There are clashes like with Ron DeSantis. It would be unclear what would happen if he would get into the race. At the same time, there are folks like Mike Pence who would still probably get in the race even if Donald Trump were running. So that's not to say that he would be the, the only candidate if he were to run in 2024, but there are Republicans who would back off. What about what this does to the Republican Party beyond the candidates that choose to run or not? Uh, what does this do in terms of, there are a lot of Republicans, look, to be clear, very few Republicans have been courageous when it, came to, when it comes to taking on the indecency of Donald Trump and the lies of Donald Trump. Um, you know, you could put them on, you could name them in one hand, list them in one hand. But that said, a lot of Republicans do want to move on and want to have a Glenn Youngkin type Republicanism, which is Trump policies per se, uh, conservative judges, tax cuts, et cetera. Um, but much more traditional, as you put it, yeah. what you say, rational, rational, sane, <laughs> not, you know, openly bigoted. Um, what does this do to the GOP? I, I think, I think the key that we need to remember with Virginia is there's the new special interest group out there, right? It's parents. 
Parents are concerned with their education. They're concerned with safety. They're concerned with COVID. And until there's a candidate that comes forward with parents at the top of mind, pocketbook issues at top of mind, public safety at top of mind, as well as education, uh, they're not going to, to go, rise to the top. And I think that's the goal moving forward is focus on those important issues. Well, so, but, but can I say, I want a, a control room. I'm going to go to question six here because I want you to take a listen to a, a Republican in Arizona, who is running for governor and has been endorsed by Donald Trump, discussing the vaccine mandate that uh, the Biden administration has put forward uh, and uh, through OSHA, the Occupational Safety and and Health Administration. Take Take a listen. If I were governor right now and he sent his OSHA goons to this state to violate our civil rights, I would meet them at the airport with our DPS or state police and arrest them. I mean, that is this new tide of, of truly Trump Republicans. Well, it, it harkens back to nullification, which is what led us into the Civil War. I'm sorry to be so dramatic. But the notion that a state governor can stop federal safety and health administrators from protecting the health and safety of American citizens is pretty crazy. And she seems to be hinting at uh, force. I mean, she didn't say, I'll send my bureaucrats or my lawyers. She says, send our state police and arrest them. Right. She said. But- that, that's... First of all, it's plainly unconstitutional, and perhaps this uh, uh, distinguished lady doesn't want to be a part of our federal union anymore, but the people of Arizona probably do. But she called them goons? I mean, this is the language of... OSHA goons, a phrase that has never been used before. (laughs) So this is the anti-government language of Donald Trump. Right. And it is, you know, she is imitating Donald Trump. And there are candidates all over who are doing the same thing because anything is acceptable. Any language is acceptable, um, and, you know, it's the bullying language. It's coming from a woman. There you go. What do you uh, hear from Republicans on, on Capitol Hill, Republicans uh, out in the states, about the future of their party if Donald Trump continues to wield the power he does, if Donald Trump continues to in- endorse candidates like this woman who's obviously troubled in some sort? Well, Republicans are, are doing their own thing. We've seen it with Senate Majority, uh, Se- not Minority Leader, now yeah. Senate, former Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. At the same time, Kevin McCarthy has welcomed Trump's support when it comes to, to House races. But certainly the NRCC is uh, is also doing their own thing, even in, in areas where the president uh, is, is challenging some of their members. And so, Jake, I did just want to add, though, that there is a debate, though, that's going on in the Democratic Party right now about how to respond to former President Trump and whether, even this was even before Virginia, about whether you should focus on Trump and Trumpism as a way for Democrats to succeed in the 2022 elections. And there is a school of thought that even if you don't focus on Trump himself, that you should focus on Trumpism because of some of the things that you're talking about today. And, and speaking of Trumpism, look, uh, Congressman Paul Gozar gonna... uh, was uh, out there before Donald Trump uh, came on the scene. Uh, but he then put out that tweet uh, in which he showed a photoshopped anime character of himself killing a photoshopped anime character uh, of Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. He did take down the tweet last night. Gosar tried to clarify, saying it was, quote, truly a symbolic portrayal of a fight over immigration policy. Where's the where's uh, Kevin McCarthy? Where is he on this? I mean, this is outrageous. Even even his own sister, Gosar's own sister, called him a sociopath yesterday. I mean, 
Where is the leadership of the Republican Party saying that this is unacceptable, that we can't do this? That excuse is ridiculous. This wasn't about immigration. Yeah. We if, all know if, that. If he wants to have a discussion and debate about immigration, have a policy exactly. discussion about immigration. Have one about uh, Afghanistan. Have one about COVID. Have one about all these issues that we rightfully have policy conflicts with AOC and the progressives. Let's have those conversations. But that kind of thing is unacceptable. And the race to the bottom by many Republicans really needs to stop. But does this actually help Democrats, Paul, do you think, the fact that you have the Republican? I mean, I know that you would, would not like, as a right. Democrat, a party of Glenn Youngkins and, or Congresswoman uh, Young Kim uh, or, you know, rational-seeming Republicans who espouse conservative values. Uh, but, you know, the Paul Gosars out there, the, this woman in Arizona, Donald Trump, does it actually help Democrats win elections? I, I don't know. Maybe it does. But again, I'd, I'd, I'd much rather have Alice... And her Republican Party, uh, which is distant memory now. Uh, and, and I, He's right here. That's <laughs> so far in the rearview mirror. I'm sorry, but it is. I mean, the days when I thought it would be terrible if Barack Obama was replaced with Mitt Romney. Are you kidding? Uh, right. th- these folks, some of them, especially Donald Trump, are a threat to the republic, a threat to the nation. Uh, it, which means the Democrats really better get their act together. Thanks, one and all. Appreciate it. Finally, from us today... Be sure to check out the Homes for Our Troops 5th Annual Veterans Day Celebrity eBay Auction among the great items. Two tickets to a future Marvel film premiere offered by Don Cheadle, a replica of the Neon Shaw's bar sign from Brooklyn Nine-Nine. You can even buy a Zoom call with People Magazine's newly crowned sexiest man alive, Paul Rudd. And I'll also be on that call. All proceeds <laughs> go to build specially designed homes for severely, severely wounded veterans of Iraq and Afghanistan and their families. You can find all the items at ebay.com slash H-F-O-T, Homes for Our Troops. Bidding closes on Sunday. Until then, you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to The Lead wherever you get your podcasts. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer right next door in a little place I like to call The Situation Room. See you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.